Have you ever asked yourself, why the hell did I do that? Annie McGubbin has, and she's come up with the answers. In her book, Why Smart Women Make Bad Decisions, she investigates why we do the things we do and how we can do them better. This is a book that combines critical thinking, neuroscience, and a fantastic storyline that gets you laughing and keeps the pages turning. It's a self-help book like no other you've ever read before. So if you are curious about why smart women make bad decisions, then make this book your next read. Welcome, Andy McGovern. You've written a magnificent new book. Oh, you're um, too kind. Um, it's fantastic. It's called Why Smart, Why Smart Women Make Bad Decisions. And I have to come clean with a bit of a fashion. I was doing a, a train with three friends of mine and they're all accomplished, fantastic, amazing women. And I was saying that I had this, this lady coming on my podcast this week and she wrote a, woman, I wrote a book and it was called Why Women Do Dumb Shit. And I got in so much trouble because I misquoted the title of your book. Shit. And that could women have do better not for me. do dumb shit, smart women make no. bad decisions. Is that right? Yeah. Well, yeah, I guess it's all just in the terminology, isn't it? Is you it? know, bad decisions, dumb shit, it's sort of in the same bucket. So tell me what, what inspired you to write why women make why smart women make bad decisions. Tell me all about it. It's so number of reasons. Um, one is that uh, um, I have a lot of very, very smart friends and I'm a, of a certain age now and I have watched them sort of careen into some fairly disastrous relationships over their lives um, and make some pretty bad decisions. Um, secondly, um, I do a lot of training. So I do the leadership program for chief executive women with my partner, David. Okay. So among other, I do a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of leadership training. And so I've seen thousands of women and I've heard thousands of stories and the repetition of the mistakes that they make and why they make them um, sort of started lodging in my brain. And I thought, you know, how can we address this? How can we address this so that we can sort of collate all the mistakes and go, this is a very common mistake that we make. Why do we make it? And how can we ameliorate it? So I guess it's sort of that. Plus I'm an actor by trade. So as an actor, I'm used to digging around inside characters and sort of looking for those unconscious motivations because that's what you do as an actor. So all those things came together. Right, and right. I thought, I know what I'll do. I'll write a book that's got a narrative basis to it and see how that goes and let's address these cognitive flaws that drive these decisions. It's amazing how you've managed to do that because what, what she's done when you read this book and um, we were talking before we got online that this is the worst thing about this book is the name because it's something that blokes would, would benefit from so much yeah. as well. It's blokes make yeah. the same stupid decisions. Yeah, they do. Um, which so Sorry, any bloke wants to go out and read this, and you might actually understand why your significant other is does the stuff she does as well. But yeah, that's um, right. You've written it in a really unique way. I, I kind of described it as as Bridget Jones's diary meets yeah. thinking fast and slow. Tell tell us how how you came up with that, and t- first describe what it is and how you came up with that idea. So I was doing um. A program it was actually was chief executive women in Sydney, and I was banging on to the group about magical thinking, 
and about the way we sort of endow things that happen out in our lives with meaning when actually I don't think there is any meaning and how this confuses us. And this woman on the course, um, she put a hand up and she said um, that the week before she'd had to fly from Melbourne to Sydney. So first of all, she's in an office and the meetings run really, really late. So she's already late for the flight. And then she looks out the window and this massive storm has broke. So she runs downstairs and she jumps in an Uber and, and the, and then they, the traffic is absolutely shocking. The storm's getting worse and the Uber breaks down. So then she's stuck. So she jumps out of the Uber. She gets into a cab. It's now about 25 minutes to get to the gate. The traffic's shocking. The, the storm's getting worse. Um, and she's starting to think to herself, something is telling me not to get on the plane. Something in the environment is telling me not to get on the plane. Okay. So she, she gets to the airport and she grabs her bags and she gets to the gate and then they say the flight's cancelled but you can get on the next one and the storm is really, really bad. And she's standing there and she's thinking to herself, if I get on that plane, maybe I'm going against something. Maybe these these incidents are telling me that this uh, this is a dangerous this is a dangerous thing, and I actually shouldn't be doing it. Anyway, so um, she sort of grits, you know, gets herself together, gets on the plane, and then guess what happened? Nothing. Nothing. Nothing happened. <laughs> Nothing happened. All. Nothing happened. It was just a series of unrelated events and it had nothing to do with her because she's not the centre of the universe and there was a storm and there was a breakdown of of an Uber and all those things, but it actually didn't mean anything. Mm -hmm. And I thought about that and I thought her narrative explained this notion of magical thinking much more than the technical explanation did. So I thought to myself, why don't I write a book that has a story behind it? And the story of a woman who encounters things through the court, you know, through the course of her life, she she has a terrible relationship with a with a narcissist, and that breaks down. But she wants him back, and then she does all this stuff around um, magical thinking, and she tries to do some sort of creative visualization and get him back. And then she has a performance review, and she goes away for a weekend, and she climbs out of window, and she makes a series of terrible decisions, and we get to hear her internal monologue which I think most women would relate to the internal monologue that goes through our brains that sort of runs things and it's pretty negative and then ends up sort of helping us to make these bad decisions because our behaviour is is not optimum. So I wrote a story and at the end of every chapter I've got this is what Kat was thinking and these are the flaws, these are the biases that are um, causing her thinking to go in this direction, which is then affecting her behaviour. So it's a narrative. It's like a novel and it's comedic because I thought I've read a lot of books. <laughs> I've read a lot of books on, um, you know, behavioural economics. I'm going to butt um, in there because an author can never tell tell everyone else how funny their book is, so I'm going to yeah. do it for you. It is fucking hilarious. I was, I'm, I was cacking myself. You know, she's come up with some... You've come up with some, you know, Virgo vegan that's going around a party handing out nutty <laughs> flavored parcels of kitchen sponge. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. it is absolutely hilarious. It is. Like, Thank I'm, you. I love Bridget Jones's diary, and it's as funny as that. It's absolutely hilarious. The the metaphors that you throw in there, and how the the main character is so concerned about her two point seven five kilos, kilos. Of being overweight. Yeah, 
Um, you know, and yeah. you, just, you just managed to get these metaphors and being able to just roll them out a little bit and every time it just makes it that tiny little bit funnier. It actually, it almost reminded me of if, um, if Tim Minchin was a woman and wrote a book, he would write this book. Okay. <laughs> um, it, oh, it my God, thank a, you. I love Tim Minchin. It felt a little bit like that, 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 that idea that you can actually make a really humorous book that you're going to learn truckloads out of, particularly about things like biases and stuff like that, which I'd love to get a little bit more into that as far as the, the leadership work you do because you, you really do link the two of them beautifully. And Thank it is you. hilarious. It's a really, really funny book. So- well, I mean, I know most women I know are sort of spend most of their lives sort of chasing, you know, 2.75 kilos or 5 kilos or 7 kilos or something. Plus I, you know, I have um, got a fairly anxious nature myself. So um, it is not it is not difficult for me to dive into those. I have anxiety in different areas. So, for instance, Kat has anxiety about speaking up in a meeting. Mm-hmm. Um, she it really really um, sets Kat is her off. The main character of the book. That's the so main character. Cat has a lot of trouble speaking up in a meeting. Cat has social anxiety. I don't have either of those things, but I have other anxieties. So I understand an anxious brain. And I understand the repetitious nature of an anxious brain and how it can absolutely cling on to ideas that are just not helpful, not helpful. Yeah. yeah. And that, that's exactly what she does in the whole thing, doesn't she? She talks herself yeah. out of it. I actually have a little bit of a, an issue with how, as a society, we talk about anxiety. We almost What about it? About- what do you think? Well, we talk about anxiety if, it, if it's part of us rather than it's a feeling. Like no okay, one, that, no yeah, one yeah. ever describes it. You know, it, it, it's cold in Sydney today and you've described it, you know, it, as it's cold. You aren't a cold person. You're just feeling cold. Yeah. And I think a lot of the time we, we yeah. dub anxiety as a personality trait when it's actually yeah. just something we're feeling. Yeah, that's so true. And I do, I know that they talk, they say that if you can separate yourself from it, um, I'm feeling anxious this morning. I'm feeling some anxiety as opposed to I am, I am anxious. That's yeah. absolutely Right. It's amazing. That's it's almost that little right. bit of Victor Frankl putting a bit of a gap between, yeah. Yeah, between absolutely. your stimulus and your response. By saying I'm feeling anxious, yeah. that makes it a feeling rather than, you know, I, I am, am anxious. My name's Annie and I've got brown hair. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you know what I mean? absolutely. Yeah, totally. And I actually think that's something that, and your book I think would do that a little bit to would actually help people put a little bit of a gap between what they're thinking and being a little bit critical as to whether their thinking is actually true, whether it is actually helpful, and whether it's something they should continue thinking like that or not. Absolutely, but it's so quick, isn't it? Our, yeah. our reactive time is so quick. And I, and you, just the idea that, um, you know, if I have an intuitive response to something, it absolutely has to be right sort of leads us into that area where we think, well, if I think that it must be right, well, that's not right. Just your, your intuition can be dazzlingly brilliant sometimes and way off piste other times. And I think that's a big part of the journey of Kat, the lead character, is that sometimes her intuition is right on and sometimes it's really inaccurate. Yeah. As, as we talked before about this being, you know, Bridget Jones meet, meets yeah. Daniel Kenneman. Yeah, Daniel Kahneman. For anyone who doesn't know, has a is a psychologist that got a PhD in in 
economics. And one of the things he talks about is that intuition's a really good thing, but we've got to delay it. Yeah, exactly. And if we delay intuition and if we look at things, look at the the individual parts of whatever we want to look at and then delay the intuition, we actually end up with better intuition. Yeah. And I think absolutely. that's kind of what you're trying to get Kat to do in the book. It 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 is. It's like, yeah, like it, it, I think I say, and I, I have to make a really strong point about that, is if you are sensing danger, if your intuition tells you not to get in the car with someone that you've just met at a party or something, you're walking across a dark car park late at night and something tells you that there's danger afoot, you should absolutely 100% trust it. I make a big point of that, that always trust your intuition if it comes to personal danger. Yeah. Um, well, one of the things you, you talked about, and and I love that I'm a, I'm a massive fan of evolutionary biology, that we oh, do yeah. stuff because cavemen do shit, all right? Yeah, I'm a yeah, massive right, fan yeah. of that. And yeah. you actually explain that beautifully in the book when you talk about, you know, if, if you're standing there and you hear a rustle in the bushes, it might, yeah. be, it might be a lion or it might be the wind. And is that what you're meaning by that intuition side of things, that if you get it wrong, there's no downside to it? No downside. Okay, so, you know, you had a reaction, it was the wind. Okay, never mind. You live to see another day. You ignored the intuitive response and it, you become a lion's dinner. Then you, you know, and I think I talk about that, you know, that yeah. person that ignored it. I think that was Miriam's friend. It's Miriam and Philip in the bush, right, because Philip discovered fire. I think that's a very important point. Um, always trust your intuition if you're in personal danger. But the rest of the time, you've got to seek the evidence. You've got to wait. You've got to wait because I might, you know, I might meet someone and think, oh, my God, you are just the most interesting, fascinating person. You're my soulmate I've ever met in my whole life. And then you turn out to be a serial killer. So, you know, I think waiting is a really good thing. Yeah. I actually love the way the word wait, W-A-I-T, is what am I thinking? Oh, that's good. Yeah, which uh, I I had that same little reaction you just did then oh, <laughs> when I first where did you get that from? That, and you, you talk a fair bit about metacognition in the book as well. Can, yeah, you, can yeah. you describe your take sure. on metacognition? So metacognition, just very, very simply, is thinking about your thinking. So rather than just accepting the thought that, you know, it, you, you think to yourself, okay, I'm actually going to, I've had that thought. I'm now going to think about that thought before I do anything which doesn't mean that, you know, you have to be slow as a wet week. Obviously, sometimes we have to make quick decisions. But especially if a, feel, if a decision is being driven by a very, very strong feeling, I think you've got to stop, stop. Think about the thinking before you actually make the decision off the back of that feeling. And I think that's where a lot of um, new age thinking and new age instruction goes off the rails because it's like elevated women's intuition especially, um, which is why I did make this about women. I think it's elevated women's intuition to an almost mystical level Mm -hmm. Um, that if you can just sit with your intuition, the truth will arise. Well, I just don't think that's right. Maybe it'll arise, maybe it won't arise. So I think you've got to think about your thinking, metacognition. Yeah, I love it. And and when you do think about that, you obviously then – if you're also aware of a lot of these biases that pop in into our way of thinking as well. So yeah. Yeah. hundred percent, hundred percent. So, you, but it's hard. I think it's hard. And sometimes I find myself, I'll listen to something on the news and I'll get myself into a really grumpy state about it. 
Right. And I'll, I'll make a decision and, I'll, and then I'll go, hang on, hang on. Let's stop for a minute here and think, like start to analyse my perception of what I'm looking at. And it takes work. It's much easier to go with that initial impulse, isn't it? It's easier. And also it feels nice. You know, you have a strong feeling. It sort of feels nice and right to go with that feeling, but it isn't necessarily. And, of course, our thinking is littered with biases. Yeah. And you, you talked about a few of them. You talked about the confirmation bias. Yeah. Can, can yeah. you explain that a little bit for us? Yeah, confirmation bias is when, okay, so I've already formed an opinion about something. So what happens is information comes into my um, sphere and if it doesn't agree with what I already think, I literally don't notice it. So let's just say um, I've made, and I think I, I cover this in the book because one of the characters is quite racist, Mrs. Hume at the beginning, and she makes all these all these assessments about her neighbours that um, Chinese people, you know, because she's she's of that generation, Chinese people are impassive and uncaring, mm-hmm. and so what happens in the in the generally in the in the course of her life is if they do something that challenges that notion she literally doesn't notice it because it doesn't fit the narrative she only notices things that support the idea that chinese people are impassive and not very emotional and caring mm. so confirmation bias i think um is the big gun i think it's probably the biggest cognitive bias and we all do it all the time we we and we seek out information that confirms what we already think because it makes us feel better and we're we part also, of our tribe. <laughs> and we know with things like our news feeds and our phones and our social media feeds and stuff, that they're, they're all feeding into that, aren't they? They know what we 100%. like and they're feeding us what we like. So they're actually, in effect, sort of fertilising that, conf- that confirmation bias. Yeah, well, I mean, the algorithm, they, they just keep, as you said, we just live in a bubble. And if you just look at the American election, like, wow, and he really just with Make America Great Again, I mean, we know that it was an absolute nightmare, but, I mean, the way that short bit of narrative just brought those people in and then whatever, you know, and everybody that supported Trump and then whatever happened that didn't agree with that, if it did get past their social media bubble, it was just, it just wasn't right because confirmation bias said he's the guy he's going to make America great again. Yeah. And then, and then that leads into the desirability bias. I want this to happen, so I'm going to take notice of that as well. And motivated reasoning is massive, right? Yeah, motivated yeah. reasoning. Yeah, I just I want this to be right so badly, so I'm going to think it is right, and I'm going to only talk to people around me that agree with me, and I'm only going to look at a news feed that supports me. And you can live in that bubble quite happily, really, but it's disastrous. You work you work a lot with leaders, particularly female I CEOs. I do. Pat, how do you go with wrestling that almost that identity that their intuition is part of what got them there, yet it's also feeding into these biases that are less than helpful? How do you go working with the ones that the people that you work with to sort of, I don't know, get them to stop and wait and think about these things? What do you do? So what 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 we do is we we go through uh, we go through the biases and then we say to them, okay, so let's let's go into a little group and have a chat so that they've sort of got some privacy around it. And let's start looking at the last couple of years and see now that you understand these biases, how many of these biases have played into business decisions in your business that have resulted in something negative. So they get to go, okay, well, we had the consistency bias. 
So we made a business decision back in April. There were cl- there were clear signals that along the way that that was not going to work, but mm-hmm. we kept at it because of the consistency bias. Yep. Um, we only saw what we want to see, confirmation bias. We had a lot of motivated reasoning. The halo effect, you know, we got somebody in from Google and yep. we were just, you know, the halo effect. They were like, they had they were shining above their head because we yeah. thought they, were, they brought such a great narrative with them. And we just couldn't look at the fact that actually the decisions they were making were not helpful helping us so they get to see how and we also have that you, survivorship bias particularly when you talk about ones like google like you know if you have a, a, a smart friend that knows something about computers in a garage you could build the next apple and it's just yeah, that's right that's lots right. of people had a garage and a smart friend that knew something about computers but there was only one steve jobs yeah exactly so we have that survivorship bias as well that can fit into that that same yeah. thing don't we and yeah so i mean the the big thing is just getting people to see. I, I work with my partner because we're both actors. So what we'll do is we'll play out a scene of the bias so that, um, you know, we'll play a scene, for instance, where so we do this thing when we're working with leaders. We actually will play out a scene in front of the room. And once you play out a scene and you can see it live in front of you of two people communicating where the bias is infiltrating their thinking, it's much easier for people to go, oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, actually, I do see that in the business. That's exactly what I see. So that's yeah, what we do. Yeah. We do that across all the biases. Yep. So we play out a scene and then we go, that was a scene where this character um, had confirmation bias or that was a scene where um, we were involved in the halo effect or that was a scene that had motivated reasoning. So we play it out in front of the room because once something is in front of you in a drama, it's much easier to understand it than just the theory. So that's what yeah. we do. That's how we do it. And I love the way you did that in the book too. You did the drama first. Yeah. And you, did, you did the narrative with Kat and, and the yeah. hipster and all of the people that she gets involved with and then you explained the biases and the things that were going on. You know, that you know, narrative is the new black and it's a bit annoying because it's sort of everywhere. Narrative and story, it's, it's, it's how we understand the world. It's how we grew up. Mm. So it's mu- it has much greater impact than just hearing about the theory. Um, so that's why we do it. That's wh- And that's why I wrote the book, because I think if you can watch Kat make terrible emotional decisions, yep. it's much easier then to go, oh, that's what confirmation bias does. Oh, okay, as opposed to just hearing about confirmation bias theoretically. Yeah, and you, you really do get the whole gambit of them with Kat, don't you? And, and her neighbours as well, like, you talked about Mrs. Hume, her neighbour who was who was you know racist and ageist and all of that sort of stuff, but yeah. she had a little penny drop moment fairly early on in proceedings, and she realised that she was lonely and miserable because she had had all of these biases. And yeah, was- she did, and it, I felt I felt I felt sad for Mrs. Hume when I wrote her because she had had such a miserable time, and I think we understand that that telling someone that they're wrong. And telling someone that they're racist doesn't work. It's an emotional experience where someone has exhibited kindness towards somebody. That's what shifts people, an emotional um, event. And for her, it was the fact, because she was also homophobic. She was homophobic and she was racist. Mm-hmm. And, and she was I, ageist I, as well. She was very she much had against the, the young people. Thing. Yeah, yeah, she yeah. was. She had. She had the whole gamut. If there was a, if there was a bias, she she had it. She was kind um, of like a female elf of home and away. Yeah, she was. <laughs> That's exactly right. And of course, she'd come downstairs because to talk to Cat because she'd heard that there was a cat 
Yeah. And she was anti-cat in the units. And, of course, then the cat, the character, not the cat, the animal, burst into tears when she sees her. And then Mrs. Hume has to stand there sort of with her arms around this emotional girl. And then all the neighbours would Chardonnay poured down her back. Yeah, with Chardonnay <laughs> down her back. And then Mr. Kovacic um, arrives and he's, of course, loud and Croatian and has, you know, has that sort of accent and she doesn't like that because she doesn't think people should, you know, be here and not, not they should be in there at all. She had all that going on. And then um, the Kovacics have a gay daughter, which she's also appalled about because people clearly shouldn't be gay. And then it's this kindness of the neighbours, just these moments, these tiny moments when the girl has put a hand on her shoulder and given her a cup of tea and something in her just breaks and she understands that there is a world of people that she could be talking to and communicating with and it completely turns her around. I think that's she- a lesson all generations in Australia need to understand. We've, we've kind of lost that. We've lost the links in the chains between our generations a little bit lately. Yeah, um, I think we need to work out a way to get that back. There's a, there's a lot of Mrs. Humes out there that have this tough, gruff exterior. That underneath it, there's a soft nougaty center, and none of us are ever getting to see oh, that because hundred percent. We don't. Care and enough. of course, we find out at the end that of course that she was in abuse in an abusive marriage. So she's built up, you know, she's built up this sort of carapace of of hardness because she had to, yeah. And it's the yeah. kindness that breaks through that because they don't judge her. So yeah. they're not judgmental. They are accepting and they're a very loving flat, you know, in all the flats, they're very loving. So that, and then she, of course, becomes the absolute leader of this disparate group of people in the flats. And really she's the one that saves Cat, isn't she, from? Well, I haven't read that bit yet. Oh, you don't you know that bit? Shut it. up, Annie. Shut up. <laughs> okay. That's okay. Oh That's okay. It's not- oh, my God. But it's. Nothing, it's, nothing. Forget I said that. Well, forget you said that. But it is a beautiful narrative about it's about how people work. And, I, you know, the, the, the why smart women make bad decisions is it, it sums it up beautifully, but it sums it up for everyone. I've, I was really worried about coming on this. You, know, you sort of think about things that you get concerned about. I was really worried about coming on this as a middle-aged you know, white bloke and sort of check your privilege and not sounding like a sexist asshole or anything like that but it's everything everything about her i think a lot of blokes do the same thing we probably you just don't talk about it as much don't you think yeah i I do we have have all all of the problems goes through you know a few of them i'm like you're probably being you know i don't take change clothes five times i should get dressed in the dark and don't even care what i'm wearing so exactly yeah (laughs) a little bit different but yeah, you can see all of those things happening. And I, I think they go across ages, they go across genders, they go across races and and sexual sexual stereotypes and stuff. So oh, all of these things are just part of being human. So if, if you're a bloke listening to this, read this book because you're going to feel a bit weird sitting there with why women make, <laughs> make bad decisions. But Thank you, Luke. Put it inside like a boating magazine or something and just pretend... <laughs> That you're doing something intensely male, maybe. So, but it's 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 an amazing book. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And um yeah, I know anyone that reads this, you're gonna learn a lot. And it's a it's a page-turning narrative. It is literally Bridget Jones meets Thinking Fast and Slow. And congratulations, Annie, because I've thoroughly loved it. And it's a it, 
it's a it's a book you should be really proud of. It's fantastic. Oh, thank you. You're very very kind, and I've really been enjoying um, your stress Teflon. And they're very really, similar. They um, are. We're they're, probably like preaching prom. to the choir a little bit. Unfortunately, yeah. Annie is a thousand times better writer than I am, and oh, and her stop! Book I is am not. A, that I, there was no laughing snot bubbles in my book anywhere where there certainly <laughs> were laughing snot bubbles in yours. It's a really, really entertaining read. So thank yeah, you. Congratulations, thank you. Annie. And, um, thank you. You're very kind. If you'd like to read Why Smart Women Make Bad Decisions, go to majorstreet.com.au and use the code YNR to claim your discount. Thanks for listening to Your Next Read. I'm Luke Mathers, and we'll see you next month.